So we're working with the I generation. This is so, so many of the parents that are listening to this episode. So many of the teachers, so many of the clinicians are working with the I generation. Um, but I know that in my own business, I work so much with Gen Xers. I'm a Gen Xer and I, I have a guest. First of all, her qualifications are, are off the chart. We could fill an entire episode with, uh, just the letters after her name. So we're not going to do that. Dr. Louise Stanger, uh, her third book, Addiction in the Family is about to come out. She's written a, a textbook for, for master's programs, the definitive guide to intervention and her own personal memoirs follow falling up. We have her to talk about Gen X parents, which is great. I'm really excited because I'm one, but because she's also a, 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 a consultant, a clinician, a wife, a mother, she's going to be able to look at this mental health and dependency issue from every single angle. Again, my, my guest today is Dr. Louise Stanger. I'm Aaron Huey. I'm your host of Beyond Risk and Back. Welcome to a WCSAD episode, a C4-sponsored West Coast Symposium on Addiction and Disorder episode of Beyond Risk and Back. My guest today, Dr. Stanger. Dr. Stanger, thanks so much for being on the air and welcome. Oh, welcome. It's such an honor to meet you, Aaron. And you can just call me Dr. Louise. That's what most people do, unless they don't have a term of endearment. And then I invite them to keep it uh, for themselves. But I'm so excited to be with you. Let's uh, thank you. Uh, let's let's start with some of the basics. Who are you and how did you end up here doing? Uh, I, I mean, I can I think I can understand how you ended up being a wife and a mom. But but how did you end up with with your 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 dr your consultant your clinician all these things in this world i recovery. think that was sort of the gift of heritage so um how did i end up on your podcast well first of all i was um i ended up with my master's at a very young age at the age of 20. Um, i was supposed to become a lawyer but i had been very smitten at the university of pittsburgh with martin luther king working for the urban league and then i suddenly found myself in san diego and thought well i don't know where the law school is but i had worked for allegheny county department of public welfare and i really was more of a social worker at heart so i ended up graduating from the school of social work uh, probably being their youngest graduate in that new time in that new day but how did i really fall into the substance use disorder mental health field well that really takes you back to my family and pretty well documented in my memoir falling up i was sort of born on the fault line of an earthquake or a tornado i grew up in a family very talented but filled with sudden death grief loss, substance use disorder, anxiety, depression, and suicide. During my lifetime, I've had five sudden deaths. And as a, I was lucky enough to get my master's and I was, I was an English lit major, so I wrote well enough for social work. Not too sure that all my English professors would still agree, but I was invited to teach in a school of social work. And I was also good at getting money. So I had about $5 million worth of NIH, NIAAA, a harm reduction grants, like the last one being a parent-based intervention to reduce high-risk problematic drinking, um, which of course is right up your alley. But I was also invited to teach the first graduate seminar in substance use when the, the world said that all social workers, marriage, family counselors, psychologists, et cetera, 
have to learn about substance abuse. And because I'm older, I'm a boomer parent, right? I got to raise you. Um, Betty Ford was just starting and San Diego was along the way. And so I brought in guest lecturers and in came a gentleman as short as I am. He was tall, beautiful and stately and had words of wisdom. I don't understand why no one actually recognizes him. His name was Frank Picard. He had been best friends with a guy named Vern Johnson, who's known as the granddaddy of intervention. But Mr. Picard had written a book called Family Intervention. Oh my God, when he spoke, my heart stopped. He described my family. I was, I am great in crisis. Give me crisis, give me sudden death, give me complex PTSD. I am very good. I'm sort of like a family whisperer. And so Mr. Ricard really gave me an entree, an appetite for the, for the sort of clinical work of working with people with sudden death, grief, and loss, or working with people whose loved ones experience substance use disorders, mental health, et cetera. And that's how I truly became involved in the field um, way before there was all this stuff. And along the way, I decided I went back and got a doctoral degree. I have all those other initials, but I went over to the University of San Diego and it really wasn't the best match, although it was a great grant and everyone. And I was always doing clinical work on the side. And about 2008, I left, um, was pretty good at organizing curriculum, hang, hung my shingle up and really became um, blessed to be someone on the speaking circuit and dealing with families in crisis, which leads me to, I'm so excited because I have a third book coming out, which is the guidebook I wanted. I wanted that book when I was, God, maybe eight years old, maybe 15, maybe 20, maybe 30. Um, and it's called Addiction in the Family, Helping Families Navigate Challenges, Emotions and Recovery. And I'm so excited at this age, um, I'm able to offer that to parents across the world. So let's get to this book. You said this book's coming out in a month and three months, something like that at the, at the time. And we're, we're, we're recording this on October 13th. You're, you're saying your book, uh, Addiction in the Family, is coming out yeah, soon. You can pre-order it right now. It'll be out in November. So it'll be out by the time West Coast Symposium okay. happens. And okay. what it is, it's it really, it was, I was commissioned to write it by Rockridge Press in March of 2020 when the world stopped. And it's a simple six chapter guidebook with self-care, um, self-care exercises at the end of every chapter. And so what it does is it can teach families, number one, they're not alone. Number two, it can teach them about what are the treatment options available? What does that all that mean? How do I talk to my loved one who's experiencing mental health substance use crisis? What are the resources I have? And how can I begin to detach to take hold of my own? How do I navigate my own emotions of anger, of shame, of humiliation? And what can I look forward to on the road to recovery? Um, at the end of each chapter, there's a self-help, everything from breathing, because we know when families are in crisis, they don't hit pause, they don't stop, they don't reflect to walking, oh my God, are you kidding me? These are very simple. Uh, obviously the last um, 
one in the last chapter talks about being of service because once we're outside of ourselves, we can really begin to grow. It also talks, it has case examples woven in. And I know that you deal with adolescent and um, one of the more striking case examples I can think of in the book offhand is of a young man who was 16 who grew up in a family, a really well-meaning family that if you looked at them um, as a picture, they looked as if they were anybody's family. They could be um, on a cereal box stop. Um, and yet that when you look closely at the family, um, the grandfather had post-traumatic stress from being a war veteran and a history of isms. Um, the grandmother had physical maladies and wasn't able to cope. The mom wanted everything to look perfect. So even though this wonderful child of hers was um, vaping himself into the hospital on a regular basis, not going to school, dropping out of all sports activities, and really lying and screaming and smashing in car windows with his foot out of anger, she still maintained it was someone else's fault. And dad, who was a hardworking guy who ran away from home when he was 16 because he had two parents that didn't live together and didn't care that had a history of isms, you know, how are they going to help this young man um, who was really holding them hostage? And so this book is dedicated to parents like that who somehow or other, their young one is holding them hostage. And how do I begin to address that? How do I find my voice? And how do I find the best treatment for that person? All right, let's jump, let's jump from this and we'll make sure people have connections to, to, to pre-order your book, find your textbook and even your memoirs at the end of the show. Let's jump into Gen X parenting. I'm a Gen Xer. I recall growing up a mix of some old school concepts and some pretty progressive ideas in parenting. Uh, Dr. Spock kind of went by the wayside and not even kind of Dr. Spock, his, his, his lessons, his techniques started to fall away because parents were realizing my child actually has a long-term memory. They are going to remember stuff, but there was still some some bootstrap parenting, you know, uh, uh, you're being bullied. Well, that's what boys do. Just pull yourselves up uh, by the bootstraps. But then also we were the last generation of really being spanked with a spoon and things like that. Whereas now you you hear of a mom smacking her kid with a spoon or a belt or a dad with a belt or a switch. We're like, that's abuse. And so, but, but I remember both of those. I remember my parents on, on both sides of that. I remember some tough love moments and some incredibly, um, involved connective, uh, uh, situations with my parents, but being a parent of millennials and we complain about millennials like crazy. My, it drives me crazy that generate Gen X is complaining about millennials. Oh, they got a trophy for everything. They had a graduation at every grade. They're so entitled. I'm like, but there are kids. We showed them how to do this. So what is it that you, you talked about Gen X, uh, uh maladies, maladies. Uh, am I saying that right? Either way? It, uh, no, I'm not. Fine. <laughs> What is it that Gen Xers are dealing with? What, what is it that we're showing up with as parents? Oh my God. Well, in COVID, you're showing up as something totally different because everything yeah. you thought 
that was going to happen isn't going to happen. So if you happen to have a young adult that's a senior in high school, they don't get to have their high school prom. They don't get to, you know, do all the things that we thought were really necessary. We also are living in an age which we didn't have when, I mean, I grew up, there was no social media. Are you kidding me? We didn't, we weren't being able to blast Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, all undulating all before our eyes. There was, there is this mass sort of contagion that happens because instantaneously, I think right now they're calling it doom scrolling where we scroll every day um, on um, our internet feed for that. So we are suddenly, um, not only are we different before, but in the midst of COVID-19, you know, uh, you are Gen X parents are just absolutely positively mystified. And also suddenly, you know, your kid might've been in a sport, but you know what, sports are canceled. All of a sudden you're stuck at home. You might've had your job furloughed. You don't have the income that you had before. You, all of a sudden you're being invited to help teach and you go, oh my God, I don't think I could pass. For example, me, I have grandchildren. I don't think I could pass like seventh, second grade math. I don't understand Singapore math. I mean, I know one plus one and use my fingers. I mean, so not only are, and we're being thrust into a world that we've never been into, but when I go back and I think, what did a boomer parent want? Well, obviously, I grew up in a family that had uh, even my own children. I had um, four live births. My third child died of sudden infant death syndrome. If wow. that didn't um, knock me, and that was the only boy. So the third child that was born, she was very well, she was just sort of, she had a different mother than the other two. And then the others had a different mother because all of a sudden I was um, just really cuddling her. We called her Velcro. We'd never put her down. Was that because, but we also wanted them to have things that I never had. I can tell you that because their parents, some of them are parents today. <clears throat> I wanted someone that was available. I didn't want someone that would be not available because of alcohol and other drugs. And so I think we, tr we did try to get them a lot. And we were a little the precursors to every, every time he did something, there was a grand award, you know, every time. Yeah. There, I mean, I don't think that, I think boomers have to take responsibility for that. And for Gen, Gen Xers, I think you were born in a world where you thought, I'm entitled. I get this. I deserve this. Was that from the guilt from, from parents now both having to work because the mortgage rates went up and, and the cost of living has gone up? So now my generation, which, which I was... I, wanted, I think it was because we wanted you to have what we didn't have. I mean, oh, okay. I went to school on scholarship. I had to earn my own money. I had to do certain things, but we wanted you not to experience. I think all parents in many respects don't want anyone, their child, their offspring to experience the hardships they've had to experience. So we try and make it a better cushion. I don't know. Does that, does that create just that right there, not wanting our children to experience the hardships that we've experienced. Does that create entitlement or does that uh, um, sacrifice resiliency? Like, and, and are those two things connected in your mind? 
it, 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 it's connected to launching because oh. if, how do you learn how to walk? How do you learn how to talk, right? In order to learn how to walk, there has to be some anxiety. Here, come, let me walk. And learning to talk, you have to have some anxiety. If I take care of everything for you, then I don't allow you the opportunity to get down and maybe fail, fall and, and get off. I mean, I have the privilege of being um, my spouse now. My, my first husband's deceased, but my spouse now was a athletic director at major universities. And when I first met him, I met him on a campus committee on substance abuse, if you can imagine that. Um, that's pretty funny. But I didn't know much about athletics. I was pretty well, uh, other than wanting to write a big grant with athletics, which I did and I got. But what I didn't know is an athlete goes out, maybe wins a match, maybe loses a match, but the next day they get up and they play again. Right. In my life, when something bad happened, I wasn't too convinced that you could get up and do it again, the resiliency. And so I think a lot of times families they want to make that scratch go away. They want to make, you know, their kid not um, uh, fail school. So they're going to march to the teacher and talk. And the hardest thing for them is allowing their child to experience sort of the consequences of their behavior. That doesn't mean that you're not mindful of learning disabilities or if someone's on the autism spectrum, but we want them to be able to launch. And sometimes, what I see a lot in my practice are parents that really did the, I always give everybody no fault insurance. I say, you did the best you could do with the resources you have. Now you met me. <laughs> so maybe we can learn to do something different. This is interesting because I, I saw a metaphor emerge that I want to talk about. And, the, and for me, the metaphor is, my God, when I learned to ride a bike, when you fell, you got hurt. So you stopped falling. My generation patted their kids up like hockey goalies to learn how to ride a bike on the grass. Mentally, emotionally, are we doing the same thing where we're, are we coddling the emotional experience? And this is a, this is a big disagreement that my generation is having because and I want to say something about your generation as well as, as, as the boomer generation, but my generation is having this struggle of not knowing where the tough love line is before, you know, your kid's suffering from depression, your kid's suffering from anxiety. And at some point you want to say, grab your pants. We're going to volunteer because you know, it's going to help them feel better. But that also indicates that you don't really understand anxiety and depression. So how much padding is too much padding and one of the things, because I hear that complaint from your generation, especially about the millennial generation, is, oh, they're so fragile and they're so, you know, every, everything insults them. And there's a portion of your generation that we're calling people with long hair communists. So there's a, you know, there's such a, there, you know, to, to, to hear them say, to hear the, the older generation say, you guys are, are so fragile and you're so snowflakey and stuff like that. It's like, you didn't let black people drink out of the same drinking fountain. Don't call us snowflakes, you know? And I know that's, that's not your generation, but the one before you, but we are still dealing with not understanding mental health and understanding it way better than the previous generations have. So this 180 degree swing of, we can't let the children get hurt on bikes. So let's pat them up like hockey goalies. 
how do we do that mentally health-wise and are we protecting them too much? Are they are our kids resilient or do they have resilience? God, there's like 15 questions here in here. Are they, are they resilient in a different way? So I think I think that resilience, I think people are, I think children are resilient. They get up, they fall down, they get up, they get a scratch, they move on. So yeah. yes, children are resilient. Number two is we're all living in a trauma bubble right now. I have a great presentation on that. So when we talk about mental wellness, how are we going to support that? Is it correct that everybody's walking around anxious um, because we can't even see anybody's faces because of the mask and depending right. on what, what you are. But to the extent that, um, to the extent that I can encourage you to be rise to your best possible self, I go from a standpoint of goodness. I look for people's strengths. And in that, I want to learn what are Johnny's strengths? What are your strengths? What? And I always do what's called a family mapping, which is which is drawing with pencils and things, taking and, and interviewing families individually. I mean, individual members, because life is messy. And what I can do is I can get a painting, a portrait, of your loved one, the young man, but also you and all the things that you've succeeded and look for strength and resiliency. And then how can we build on it? You know, is it true that it is scary when someone tells you you're not good enough? Is it true when the boys make fun of you like you're too fat or someone calls up a young girl and says, hey, I really love you. Can you take off your shirt and show me and then throws it out on social media? But right. to what extent do we encourage that and to what extent can we help someone build resiliency is it finding what they're the best at and not being afraid to set that sort of limit and not being afraid to say hey you know what we're not all great at everything so but what are your particular skills what are you know your talents i think that we are doing a disservice to our young people and to parents because you know they, they sometimes we don't see with clean eyes our own family we need that objective third eye of a professional so what is gen x best at not knowing that you're 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 boy when you said doom scrolling i don't know if i wanted to dive under the desk or just go smash all my equipment but i'm a doom scroller you said it and i was like that's me so I, I'm starting to see some of the things we're, we're not good at. We certainly carried on the tradition of um, some enabling behaviors by giving them a trophy for showing up for practice when you didn't get a cookie for that. That's what you did if you wanted to play sports. Um, but what, what do we do well as a generation as parents? I think you do well that you care, that you are willing to take a look and say, hey, look, my child has difficulty. They have difficulty with learning. The word autism is not a dirty word anymore. Yeah, I agree. The word dyslexia is not a dirty word anymore. Um, the word mental wellness can come into people's vocabularies. You know, it's interesting. People, parents like more if their child has a mental health issue than if they have a substance use disorder. There's less stigma attached to that. And there should be no stigma attached because when you look at family histories, you can see in the family history that, I mean, my own alike, there's mental health, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's suicide, there's substance use disorder. So therefore the grace of God go I and all of my offspring. 
you know, but I think that you're more willing to say, we don't know and how and what can we do and be open to the conversation. I mean, I think that's the key for anyone is being open to the conversation. You know, I've been doing it this way and this way. Maybe there's some different strategies. You know, you're, you're, I think the biggest thing I always get from families is families say, um, uh, um, will they still love me? That's the biggest fear. Right. They're not going to love me. Will you still love me? I did. I recently wrote a blog. Will you still love me? And that's the biggest fear of every family man. You're, they're not going to love me. They're never going to talk to me again. I go, really? Who pays all their bills? Are you kidding me? They're not going to run away. And, and getting over that fear and understanding that you did the best you could do. Let's go see what some other ways of doing it are. And how can we help this person grow? I think I agree that that my generation is we're willing to take a second look. We 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 were we were still willing to uh, ignore and rebel against our parents enough that even in our fifties now, as as Gen X, as as we're in our fifties, we're we're willing to take a look. We're willing to look at this LGBTQ thing differently. We're willing to look at mental health differently. We're willing to look at addiction differently, at at uh, judicial punishments and and consequences differently. Um, and I also feel like my generation's stuck in some of the same. There's there's some of the same old stuff going on where we're we're still not willing to uh, um, to tolerate a certain amount that needs to be tolerated. Things like depression in our children, things like anxiety in our children. We're still saying, but you know, it's not a real thing. It's an attitude. Like my generation is still learning the difference between willingness and capability when it comes to mental health. You know, I totally agree. I've been very involved um, in in the Los Angeles area. There are two absolutely amazing um, groups that are volunteered. Um, one is Teen Line and the other is the Trevor Project. Both of those, Teen Line is the largest hotline for um, suicide. It also includes LBGTQ, but Trevor, Trevor, the Trevor Project is really known for as a suicide hotline for LGBTQ youth. And when you think about the youth of today, you know, um, these are real risks. Um, taking a look and denying if a kid is cutting, that's really not so bad. You know, what's going on behind that? What's going on behind the isolation? And taking a look and, and looking at, that's why I love family mapping, because in family mapping, you can see a genetic predisposition to depression. And what is depression? Is it normal, non-pathological? Is it something that happens as a result of, um, perhaps the result of a recent uh, loss, a, a death, or someone in the family in COVID or a recent, we have, we have suicide now at an alarming rate. I mean, I just was doing statistics on this today, not only for teens, but for older adults and for military. You know, what is it that is, you know, making someone feel that they need to die of a brain disease? Because suicide is a brain disease, okay? Right. Um, and I think parents today just need to be open and willing to say, hey, you know what? I did the best that I could do with the resources I have. I'm sort of stumped. And that's the question that all parents have to do for all generations. And even though 
you know, it's so amazing. I mean, did you ever take a parenting course? I did. I took a love and logic. I became a love and logic instructor. Uh, but, and before that, uh, up until my daughter was five, six years old, I think I was, well, I was also a drug addict uh, up until she was three, but I, I have, I, I definitely am a, a compensatory parent. A lot of what I do is still in compensation for how crappy I feel for the father I was in her first three years. Yeah. And so, but, but nobody takes parenting courses. Very few people ever take a parenting course. Really so we're, we're asking people all the time to do something that we really have no experience with. I don't care how many child courses you take on a university campus or on a continuing education course. You really don't know. How, oh, there's this little thing. Oh, you got a diaper. Oh, it cries a lot. Now what am I supposed to do? You know, it's very, it's, it's the most illogical thing in the entire world. And then we tell everybody, now you're a parent as if yeah. there's going to be some magic that comes imploding into our heads and says, oh, I know what to do. I know how to do it. Um, and you and you absolutely positive. So to all parents out there, you know, I think recovery or when your child is, when your young adult or your young child has a problem, there's a recovery process that's a parallel process, albeit yeah. for mental health, because you all are learning together. And you let's, all- let's- Let's come back. I want to, I want to, I want to explore that topic a little bit more. If I can take a little bit more time with you, I want to, I, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors for the WCSAD, but then I want to come back and I want to talk more about this family recovery piece because your book addiction in the family, I'm assuming covers we're all in recovery. So let's come back and talk about, I feel like I could ask you anything and that's, that's amazing. Doc, hang tight with me just for a quick second. I'll be right back uh, to you. Okay. I've said this before a lot of times that these events, these, these addiction and mental health recovery events really require a lot of support. And if we were doing it live, if we were all locked up in a hotel room, we'd be watching everybody talk. I would have this wonderful booth with, with my flashing on the air sign that you see behind me and all my signage up and people would come by and I'd be connecting with these people physically. Um, and I miss that. I really miss w these, these huge events that C4 has put on all these years uh, being with all these professionals, these experts, and these brilliant, brilliant people in the world of treatment and uh, mental health recovery. But to keep it going, because just because COVID's here, we can't stop learning, we can't stop teaching, and we can't stop training ourselves and each other. There have been sponsors who've showed up to make sure this happens virtually. So this is the WCSAD Virtual 2020 Conference, and these are our bronze sponsors who showed up with money, time, and energy to make sure this thing happened. Ideal Practice, Claim Path Solutions, Promises Behavioral Health, Hogue Addiction Treatment Centers and Solmar Recovery, 12 South Recovery, Trauma and Beyond Psychological Center, Oric Consulting, Muirwood, J Flowers Health Institute, Cirque Lodge, and Benchmark Transitions. These are our bronze sponsors. My personal thank you to our bronze sponsors, to C4 Events for putting on, for making sure that this WCSAD Virtual 2020 Conference happens because 
whether or not we've got COVID, this information is still needed. Okay, let's get back to our guest. Okay, let's talk about family recovery, doctor, because this anxiety that the child's going through, now the whole family has, has anxiety. This depression that grandma has. Uh, you know, we, when you talk about body mapping, when we talk about epigenetics, I mean, this is, it's not one. I, Patch Adams, Dr. Patch Adams was one of my early mentors for a very short amount of time. I was invited to teach at the uh, Gesundheit Clinic. But when I first heard him speak, he said, your grandma doesn't have Alzheimer's. Your family has it. Treat the family. And this was back, back then. <laughs> Uh, is it happening? Is is this actually taking place? I know my facility is one of the leading facilities for family intervention, and I don't believe we've even got halfway there. And we do so much with the families, not just a parent visit. We are, oh, I'll tell you off the air how much we do with families, but I still believe we're we're barely halfway there. Family recovery, what does it look like to you as an expert in in uh, addiction in the family and what is still missing in treatment? So I think that there has to be from the get-go um, a parallel process. So just because your loved one happens to be in a treatment center, a behavioral health care center, that doesn't mean that you don't have any work. So I won't work with a family I'm just that old enough and snobby enough unless they agree for a one 90 day engagement with me because we know it the evidence space takes 90 days to make a change and that they too may make changes. So just because we're working to help one loved one get to a treatment, it may be that I end up sending a lot of other people different places and working for systemic change because whoever that one, especially adolescents, you cannot like expect an adolescent to go to a behavioral health care center and then suddenly whenever their time is up to return back because they're under 18 if this family has not done any work. It won't work. They don't stand a chance because we have to have scaffolding on both sides of the fence. So for me in the book and everywhere I talk about what does family have to do to begin to learn how to take it? How do they learn how to detach? How do they learn not to be part of the problem? How do they learn to be in the solution? Do it. <laughs> How often should the family go to counseling? Like, like let, let's 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 look so at that. Should they be in weekly? You're working with me. I work. I mean, I work sort of in an at your service with my teammate in an at your service capacity, where minimum, if someone is in a behavioral health care facility, we'll have a minimum of one big phone call a week. But at any time during the week, anybody can reach out. So that that means a lot of different things. It may mean that you're sending someone else to another type of therapist, you're, you're sending other things. So counseling to me is a gift. And so I think that you have to take a look at that and say, this is a gift I'm gonna give myself and not to see it as anything pejorative or, or negative. But this is something so I can learn how to rise to my best possible self. It's not just, it's not just, it's how do I communicate? How do I share my heart? How do I learn how to handle my own stresses? How do I learn how to be the person I'm meant to be? And in doing that, I, how do I learn how to communicate? How do I learn how to set boundaries? How do I learn how to set limits? 
Um, I call boundaries, compassionate directness. Um, so there's all kinds of different things that take place on the family side that have absolutely nothing to do with the identified loved one who may be in your treatment center. But that's a much longer, exciting conversation, <laughs> I would say. And I have a hard stop at 1130. Yeah. So, so doctor, what, how, how can, how can my listeners follow up with you directly? Oh my God. Well, I, um, if you're filming this, then I we can are. tell you that I'm my own personal assistant. So you can call my phone number. It's 619-507-1699. Um, I always pick up my phone with the exception if I'm working with another uh, family, but you'll get a phone call back that day. Um, I have, um, because I was a professor, I have a very, very big, robust um, website with lots and lots of information. There's lots of information on Gen Z, on adulting, it's hard to do, on families. We were talking about that in particular. There's a lot of information on a lot of different things, um, and you can access that off of allaboutinterventions.com. Um, I also do a lot of writing or blogging. Um, and so you can see some of my work on Thrive Global. I've been a Thrive contributor, I think, for over seven years for Arianna Huffington. You just have to Google my name, Louise Stanger Thrive. A lot of my articles are also um, reproduced in London, thanks to Deidre Boyd and DB Resources. But and again, you can contact me, I guess, through my website, I get all, I get those and I answer, or, you know, I'm just grateful for you to provide, Aaron, this forum that allows parents to know that they are okay, that they too can learn to thrive, that it's, that they're, they did the best they could do. And now we're going to learn how to do something differently. Sometimes life happens throughout your control. You know, and I'll, I'll end with one short vignette. I was married. I had four children. One died of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. And I had three daughters. They're bright, beautiful, terrific. And one day, uh, if you after biking 60 miles, their father at age 40 dropped dead. There was nothing I could do to um, stop that tidal wave of grief that carried them because they would never have that. And did I do a bad job? No, I didn't do a bad job. Do they have the effects of that plus all the epigenetics of my family of origin and his? Absolutely. But what we do know is that each in their own way have learned to thrive. Um, one, as I told you, has a podcast called Wild Ideas Worth Living and Vitamin Joy. Shelby Stanger will talk to you about how she's learned how to deal with depression. Uh, Felicia Alexander, um, uh, when she was in college, um, wanted to be a boxer, but she opened boxing gyms all across the country because she said in her charity is mental health and depression. And, and her charity is, um, uh, she opened gyms called Box Union because when her father died, she wanted to box away her grief and pain. And then the oldest daughter, which she won't mind, Sydney Holland, is in recovery. And she is very spiritual. So her company that she transposed is called the Urban and the Mystic, which is like 
crystals and that a lot of the treatment centers send out boxes from. But you know, each one of us has had our own trajectory and our own growth. If I take a look at the women in my life and each one did, was I the best parent always? Absolutely not. Did someone help me along the way? Absolutely. I am so grateful for the counselors that helped me become a better person. So I in turn could become a better parent and a grandparent. So I just want everyone to know there's always hope and there's always a solution. And I'd be honored and humbled if you need to, to reach out. And if I'm not the right person, I just know lots of people. <laughs> and so I'm happy to refer. Thank you, Dr. Stanger. I appreciate it. Uh, please, please use her information to get in touch with her folks. Dr. Stanger uh, is is really quite the expert. And again, just the just the initials after her name could have taken the whole show. But let's let's wrap around with this. My Gen X parenting partners, the the uh, uh, millennial parents that are up and coming that I'm going to start working at next. The biggest thing to remember, and it's something that she met, uh, doctor mentioned to me off the air before we started, was this idea that we're alone. We're that's still the worst thing we pass down as as parents to the next generation of parents is the idea that as we go through these struggles that we're alone and we're not. Thank you for listening to this episode of the WCSAD Beyond Risk and Back with my guest, uh, Dr. Louise Stranger. Stanger. Um, please join me every week for all of our episodes of Beyond Risk and Back. Please listen, like, and subscribe, and share, and please leave a review for these podcasts so that we can help parents find the help they need to help their families. That's the best thing we can do. And uh, big thanks to Deepin Productions, who's producing the podcast, and Your Cause Consulting, who's helping me get this podcast launched all over the world to 12 million plus people, Mental Health News Radio, and of course, everybody over there at C4 Events, who puts on the WCSAD conference every single year. Parents, take care of yourselves first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. I will see you next week.